Welcome back to Hazmat Hotel, the show where we shelter in place with the volume up. You are listening to season two premiere. Woohoo! I'm your host, Leah Goldman, broadcasting as I always do from my very own Hazmat Hotel in North Jersey. Admit it, you missed me. Well, I missed you too, kiddos. If you're like me and you're following the upcoming presidential election with equal parts dread and anticipation, then you know all about the Lincoln Project and their searing anti-Trump attack ads. Correction, you not only know about the Lincoln Project, but deep down, you channel your best Jack Nicholson and a few good men and tell yourself you want the Lincoln Project in this race. You need them in this race. Founded by a group of prominent self-proclaimed never-Trump Republicans, including George Conway, Steve Schmidt, Rick Wilson, Jennifer Horn, and my guest today, Reed Galen, the Lincoln Project is now responsible for some of the buzziest, most damning campaign ads in American history. Something's clearly working because between April and June of this year, the Lincoln Project raked in $16.8 million in donations toward its singular goal of defeating Donald Trump and his cronies. Reed Galen, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I want to just dive into it because I have a lot of ground I want to cover. You've mm-hmm. said um, in other interviews that the Lincoln Project ads are designed to speak to, quote, Republican voters with Republican language and Republican iconography. Do you think that they're reaching their intended audience or that they have become very popular red meat for Democrats? I would say both. Uh, so we have, a, we have different ways of going about this. So we have what's called our audience of one strategy, which I'm sure you've seen a lot of, which we take the uh, president to task personally, and we try and climb inside his head. You know, the thing that's so funny about Trump for somebody who's seen so larger than life for so long, he is actually the most transparent person you're ever going to meet. All of his quirks, all of his self-consciousness is on display 24-7. And so I think the the difference between what we've done and others is that we've been willing to go at that sort of bubble of unreality he lives in and he clearly reacts poorly to it and so you know those are ones that i think more broadly certainly i think do appeal to democrats but i think as importantly as that um may probably more importantly than that is that they shift the strategic narrative of the race and i think you can see whether or not it was on uh, an ad we did called flag of treason in which we we held up the confederate flag as a symbol of disunion slavery you know treason you know, we knew that Trump would would support the Confederate flag. We knew he would never repudiate it because that would mean he would repudiate his base. Um, and you know, he still talks about it as a symbol of free speech. And so we see that as one of you know one piece of his rhetoric on race since the killing of George Floyd that has really been repellent to the Republican and independent voters in the suburbs. We think are most amenable to hearing our our message. And then the second one. Uh, was called Trump is not well when he shuffled down the ramp at at West Point and we goaded him into responding to us. He took the bait, and you know up until last week, right, he was still talking about man, woman, camera, TV. That you know, and when he is doing that, remember he's also the ultimate projectionist, which means he's not trying to convince you or me or voters that he can do the job. He's trying to convince himself. And so there are those ads that I think cut both ways. And then we see that we have an ad like we dropped this week called Memories, which I think really cuts to what a lot of Americans are feeling, which is, as you know, the fall, I think, holds such a special place in America, or it has for so long, right? The, the sort of ritual of kids going back to school, the summer coming to an end, Labor Day, those last barbecues before, you know, everybody kicks back off into, you know, the second half of the year. 
especially when it comes to school. You know, so many of us rely on our kids being at school so we can go to work. Uh, and so I think that's one that you've seen really speaks to the heart of what I think so many Americans are feeling right now. Let me ask you about that one in particular. There's a definite tonal shift in memories versus some of the prior ads. It's it's uh, more muted. It's more subtle, I would say, even though it's so on the nose, it, it has a subtlety. It's not as in your face like the other attack ads. Was that sure. deliberate? Are you, are you, is this a data-oriented strategy you're collecting, engagement st stats. It's totally very different than the other ones. Why? If you think about all of the vectors of attack that the Trump campaign really was relying on vis-a-vis -vis Joe Biden, it was China, it was his cognitive abilities, it was his far left-wing policies. He, has, he hasn't been able to take Biden to task for any of those things. One, because the Biden campaign is doing a very good job of doing the backyard campaign in which they just don't they don't make themselves a target for the president to go after. And I think that drives Trump personally nuts because he's a guy that wants to throw punches. But also, you know, for example, the day that John Bolton's book came out, for whatever that's worth, there were some there were some passages in there about how basically Trump had rolled over like a dog for President Xi. We already had a, a China spot in the can. Well, we took that, we recut it in about an hour and a half and dropped it on their head. Well, they haven't brought China back up as far as like Joe Biden being soft on China with any real measure of success since then. But that's not one that has a lot of resonance probably with individual voters in Wisconsin or Pennsylvania or Arizona because they may not like China or they see China as sort of a geopolitical foe, but it's not really tangible, right? right? It doesn't, it doesn't uh, unless you're a farmer in Iowa and you've seen your soybeans molding you know, in, your, in your fields, then it's very tangible. But I think for the most part, that's not one that really strikes at the heart of voters. Whereas this one, there was an, uh, there was an axis of, of grief and sadness that I think we really wanted to strike because I think that's what people are feeling. It's, it's, there's, a, there's probably sadness, uncertainty, anxiety, anger, despair. And so I think you're, yeah, I mean, there are, we're not typically a data-driven organization except for how we see something lands vis-a-vis -vis our social channels and, you know, the earned media that it picks up. And with that, you know, we see that, that memories, most of our ads, you know, on social, whether or not it's Twitter or YouTube or Facebook, are, you know, clearing the one to two million view rate by, you know, two, three hours after they drop. Can, can we talk, I want to talk about that a little bit because so much is made these days, especially about, you know, Twitter is not emblematic of what's happening in, on Main Street in the real world. If, if Twitter were to be believed, Biden would not be the Democratic nominee. So it, mm -hmm. it, as, using that metric, can we say reliably that these ads are reaching their intended audience? That they're moving the needle. They, they are, but not because, here, not because Twitter is the real world. But because when your organization has 1.7 million followers or whatever we have, when you know that all of the national media, all of the state-based media in these target states, whether or not they're electoral college states or U.S. Senate races, are there and they are waiting for your content, when you spin up a million views in a couple hours, it creates a centrifugal force that spins it out into the media, which then ultimately spins it out into the, to the, the you know, real world. Okay. And so it jumps, they jump the air gap, you know, but like what people say on Twitter, I don't, you know, if I know the person on Twitter and they say something I'm like, that's interesting. I don't think that a suburban mom in, in Waukesha County, Wisconsin thinks the same because she probably doesn't, that's probably not on her radar. 
right? So we utilize it because it's such an efficient and effective way for us to move content. But we also understand that, you know, there are traditional ways you have to buy media, do ground game things and have a digital campaign into target areas. And we do those things too. Do you believe the polls right now? So I thought Hillary Clinton was going to get 340 electoral votes. That tells you how I feel about polls. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm still traumatized by 2016. I'll never forget that ticker on the front page of the Times. I'll, I'll sure. go to my grave remembering that ticker. <laughs> you know, I think, I think polls are trend lines. You know, they're, you know, I know it's, it's a trope to say they're snapshots, snapshots in time. So I think that you can reasonably say, is Donald Trump in trouble? He probably is. Does he have the ability to come back? He probably does. With each day of increasing infections, you know, rising death toll, you know, the economy shrunk by a third in the second quarter, news like that makes it a lot more difficult for, for a president in his position to come back because he's not, Donald Trump is incapable. And it took me a minute, it took, it took me reading Mary Trump's book to understand this, which is really almost a clinical diagnosis of the guy is that when, you know, I used to say that Donald Trump is either unable or unwilling to do the job of president. He's not unwilling because unwillingness denotes a level of agency he doesn't possess. He's incapable of doing the job. And he was from day one, but he, he employed that sort of Trump luckiness and falling backwards into things for three years um, that he's had for his whole, most of his career, right? I mean, there's never been a guy who's failed so much, right? And, and somehow always ended up on his feet and ultimately ended up in the White House. And so, you know, I, I, I like to see that he's down. I like to see that nationally his disapproval rating is at 61% because it should be at 90, given how he has totally uh, cratered the country with his lack of response to COVID, either when he first found out about it or subsequent to that. But, you know, as I said, the, this, there, are, there are a lot of people who still won't vote for a Democrat, regardless of who it is. And they will vote for a Republican regardless who it is. So we're very tribal. But I think he's in trouble. I think he knows that for the day we're taping, July 30th, you know, he saw the massive contraction in the American economy. And that's why he shoots up a flare like maybe we need to move back the election because that's the one thing his lizard brain is always aware of is self-preservation. Right. We, we have to deflect and deny and, and distract. And so we will take him to task for that because we also see that he's sort of now at his sort of political and strategic Alamo. He doesn't have many more things to fall back on um, that can distract people anymore when, you know, you're, you can't see your grandmother or, you know, Houston is, you know, got the largest medical center in the world and it's out of beds. You know, we're in a bad way in this country and it's all at his feet, but he certainly won't take any responsibility mm -hmm. for that. So I live in North Jersey. I'm in solid blue country. And yet mm -hmm. I am still amazed by the number of people who either let slip or reveal themselves to be MAGA. What we, what we colloquially, you know, we refer to them as MAGA. Sure. And I wonder if, you know, if in fact we're seeing the same, you know, the same thing we saw in 2016, either underrepresentation of these kinds of voters in polls or the same shame, the same fear of being outed as either racist or what, what have you for saying, no, I'm sticking with the guy. They might. It's certainly worth, it's worth, it's worth accepting as an, op as an option right? If nothing else. And so this is what, you know, we tell people consistently, whether or not they're Republicans or independents who are going to vote for Biden or just simply not vote for Trump. And certainly what we tell all of our, our newfound Democratic friends is like, if Trump wins, if the Dems don't turn out, right? 
he needs a low turnout election. That's what he got with Hillary. It was the only way he was going to win. And it was, you know, the two most unpopular candidates, two nominees in the history of the Republic, right? They had like a combined 160% negative rating or whatever it was. Of course, we know he didn't want to run, run against Joe Biden. He didn't want to run against another older white guy, right? He wanted to run against the socialist or he wanted right. to run against Elizabeth Warren. Biden, you know, Biden survived the process. Uh, and that's a whole, there's a story that will be told for years and written books written about all that in and of itself. But I think that's why we can't take anything for granted, whether or not it's people less willing to accept, you know, the public approbation for being a, a Trump supporter. Uh, I think that, you know, we should assume that there's some of that there. But I would, I, I should also say that we should assume that there are a lot of people who said for three years, He's a joker. He's, you know, look at his Twitter feed. It's ridiculous. You know, I'm really not, you know, I don't really proud of having the guy as a president. Clearly doesn't really care about doing the job the right way, but the economy's good. My 401k is right. roaring, all that other stuff. But now it's, it's very hard, I think, for even human beings to under, to like deny the fact that he's, again, uh, not, he can't do the job. He's just, he, and he's never going to. If Trump loses, does Trumpism die with him? I don't think so. So what happens to the GOP? Well, I don't know. We burned our boats and then we burned the ashes that the you know boats left over. So that's going to be somebody else's problem. But I'll tell you that from our perspective, you know, if we beat Donald Trump on November 3rd, the mission isn't over because the mission isn't over until Joe Biden takes the oath of office on January 20th. After that, there are a lot of folks, Ted Cruz, Ron DeSantis, uh, Marco Rubio, Josh Hawley. Tom Cotton. These are all guys who are, well, I don't know about DeSantis, but the rest of them are certainly smart. Well, or Rubio, I don't know either. But the rest of them are certainly smarter than Trump, right? Not a high bar. And they will, they're probably maybe even scarier than Trump if such a thing is possible because they know how they want to use sort of what he allowed, right? Sort of the lost boys of American politics on the right to come out of the woods uh, where they'd been stuck for generations because it wasn't socially acceptable to have them out you know, they could vote for you, but you didn't want them coming to dinner, right? Now they're standing on the dining room table with, you know, knives and forks in their hands, you know, screaming and carrying on. And they all want that 30 to 35% that Trump got, you know, in 2016. And they'll do anything they can to try and secure that. I know you've been asked a million times and there's no, mm -hmm. no one's got a satisfying answer. What happens to the Lincoln <laughs> Project if and when Trump loses? What is the Lincoln mm -hmm. Project? Is it the seedlings of a third party? Is it the seedlings of a reconstituted GOP that's more centrist? And if so, what does that look like? What is this thing? Uh, again, if there, are, if, if there are leaders among us who want to go and wade back into the intra-GOP party fight, Godspeed. I won't be one of them. Um, I, you know, I spent three years after 2016 trying to start a third party. I spent two years and $2 million and I got exactly one ballot line in New York state. And I, again, in the, at the risk of, of having your listeners eyes glaze over, I will not go into the, to the details and minutia of ballot access fights. Um, I, all of us are too ADD for the, for the effort anyway. Um, so what I think is more likely, and again, this is all very, you know, one-tenth of an eyeball looking down the road as the rest of the 90% of the eyes are looking forward to this, is, you know, we could have one to two million people on our list by the time election day rolls around. We will have millions of people 
on our, you know, that follow us on social media will have, you know, we have probably 10 or 15, maybe 25 media hits a day. You know, some of that will necessarily recede as, you know, the excitement of the campaign recedes. But I do think that we have a real opportunity to play a role as a, as a major coalition partner with, you know, three, four, five million people that we can talk to and ask to do things if they believe that it, what we're asking them to do is in line with what's for, good, what's for the good of the country. Because I think that's the thing. We're not a policy organization, right? We're a political organization. And so for us, you know, I have a personal belief that like there's no, there's no pet project policy-wise. There's no party line vote that totally reorders society, you know, until COVID is done. Like until we mitigate that, until it's, you know, we're, we've really sufficiently, you know, put the infection rate down on the ground until we have a vaccine, until the death rate is really minuscule until we can reopen the economy for real and safely, until we can send the kids back to school, until the trappings of life where you don't have to think about what it is you, you need to take with you for your own protection when you get in the car to go to the grocery store. Like we're in, we're in crisis mode here. And so I think from our perspective, you know, if, if every crisis, if crises breed opportunity, then we see it as like, how can we, you know, how can we help the country unite around First and foremost, let's climb out of this hole because it's not just health; it's yeah. also economic. I mean, um, but can 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 limited government remain a a core tenant of the GOP in a pandemic world where a strong federal response is required? Well, it's not it's not one of their core tenants now, so I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> okay, right, fair enough. I mean, listen, I mean, I, I just finished an op-ed. I, I don't know where it'll run or when it'll run, but um, making this exact point, which is if the Republican Party used to be of limited government, severely curtailing federal oversight or overreach. And now we got DHS goons rolling through the streets of Portland. Like that's not a limited government kind of ethos. Um, that's an authoritarian ethos. And I think that's, you know, the, for the Republican party uh, and for its leaders from Trump on down, they see this stuff as performative, right? It's not about doing the job. It's about whatever, you know, whatever Trump says, you know, if it's crazy and can rile up the base and make you some money, go do it. And if he says something crazy, say nothing. And there's no, there's no attendant um, fallout for you. There's no attendant consequence. And I can say personally, from our perspective, we will bring the consequence to those people come November. Now, you, you probably saw the op-ed in the New York Times this week by Stuart Stevens, Republican strategist, mm -hmm. who described what- And a senior seeing. advisor of ours. So he described this as the inevitable outcome um, of a party that had become the, the party of white grievances. Mm -hmm. um, is, can we distill what we're seeing right now to racism, that racism had become the, the underlying engine driving the GOP, or at least they figured out it, 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 it drew the voters to the polls? Um, it's racism, but racism for the purposes of inciting fear. Uh, and utilizing fear to get voters to take a certain action. What does that mean? Does that uh, mean it's not real racism? No, no, it's real racism. Um, but it was, it was, it was, it was stoked and 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 fomented, um, maybe from a small fire to a bonfire, where you got more and more people uh, to believe a certain thing that either they didn't believe. Or maybe they believe, but they sure as hell never say out loud because it wasn't socially acceptable. Uh, or they wholeheartedly believed and no one ever listened to them before because they were thought of as a crank for believing that and saying it out loud. 
Um, and so, yeah, I think there is. I mean, look, you know, I mean, Richard Nixon's 68 campaign was a law and order campaign. It was three years after the Voting Rights Act was passed, right? If you think about it, it's pretty crazy. But it has become a white grievance party because, and I, and I think you see this more so maybe even in like wealthy, older white guys than you do even in working class white guys, is they think the world was theirs and they see the world changing and they don't like it. Now, nothing is going to be taken from them other than maybe some perceived primacy, right? Um, but, you know, listen, we used to live in Southern California in Orange County. And we were back there in May. And, you know, the number of like blacked out Range Rovers, you know, with don't tread on me stickers driving around was like ridiculous. I mean, these people never been tread on in their lives. You know, $150,000, $250,000 boats with their Trump flags flying around. And they, it's all like they're doing it just to, it's a big middle finger. He has given them license to act in a way that society previously would never allowed, have allowed them to act because it's ugly and people don't want to deal with that. Um, and, and so I think that, yeah, there's a racism. It's probably a chauvinism to it too. So, um, so the chauvinism piece I want to ask you about, because I come from the world of women's media. I've spent years, um, years talking to women, covering this through the lens of choice. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how much of this is because the GOP has made abortion this absolute litmus test of conservative bona fides. And so you end up with these ultra- frankly, crazy, rabid, religious zealots in the party that have co-opted the conversation and, you know, kind of fringified everything. I mean, how much of, how much of this is, is because of abortion? Um, I don't know. Um, you're looking at me certain... like I'm crazy. No, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm not looking at you like you're crazy. I'm not looking at you like you're, I mean, it, it feels like that. I'm not, I, I'm trying to answer the question because I don't know, I don't know that I have a good answer. I mean, it has certainly been a core tenet. I, I think abortion was at the top of the list because it allowed for, you know, the, if you think about it, the individual liberty, the fiscal conservative guys, the individual liberty is sort of the religious right also, right? There's a sort of a weird mix between the religious right and libertarians. Um, they both see it as, you know, libertarians like, let live free or die and the and the and the religious uh, evangelicals see it as like i get to f- practice my faith however i want to practice my faith um but you know they weren't ever really in line with the sort of fiscal conservatives or necessarily the the hawks right um and so i think there was this crossover of the evangelicals on the individual individual liberty piece and you know, it, and it, it, I think I, for me, it was always a personal sort of like dichotomy because if you're for individual liberty, then like every human's body is their own, right? right? Um, but, you know, the Republicans took that to mean that your body, now the, 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 the body growing within a woman, uh, you know, also had rights. Now, I'm not going to get into that debate, right? I think, I think that what I'm saying is from their perspective, um, you know, they saw that as like that, that fetus has an individual, you know, has its own individual rights, which was always most ironic to me because they're so, you know, they love the death penalty and like they want old people to die from COVID, right? So like, so the, the right to life thing is really like a, it is a transactional piece, but they know that there is a lot, there are a lot of single issue voters among, again, Republican primary voters who make up probably 12 and a half percent of the country right, but they have an outsized voice in these elections with gerrymandered districts and everything else, that it did have to become a litmus test. And you could probably 
survive as a pro-choice Republican for a could while. You? you could have probably in the, in, in the 90s and even into the 2000s. I'm not sure you could anymore because now it's all been, you know, it's, it's all, it's all, I don't know. They're all, they're all radicalized in their own weird ways, right? So, you know, if the evangelicals are going to make up the bulk of who votes, then that's what they're going to demand of you. You mentioned earlier that Biden was effectively tiring Trump out because he, you know, he can't take any swings at him. He's not giving him any opportunities, any, you know, very few public appearances, very few opportunities mm. to make his very famous gaffes he's prone to making. So I, I assume then you think he's doing, a, that the campaign is, is running well, that it's doing a good job. Um, in the context of this campaign, yeah, um, they, they're doing what they need to do. I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, we can't coordinate with them. So I don't have, on any given day, I don't know what it is they're sure, up to. But, do, but you think they're doing a good job. How would you grade them? Yeah, I mean, I'd give them, well, I give every campaign a B, right? Because here's the thing. Campaigns that win presidential campaigns are the best campaigns that were ever run, right? And campaigns that lose presidential campaigns are the worst campaigns that were ever mm -hmm. run. Uh, I mean, of course, we know that that's not true. I mean, Donald Trump ran the worst technical campaign in the history of American, modern American politics, and he's the president. Right. He had five people in an airplane and a bunch of rallies like that's all he had. I mean, some Facebook groups, the Russians, obviously. But so I think that they're doing fine. I think that strategically they are where they are, which is, you know, Trump needs a target. He 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 has to punch. Um, and if he's not punching, he's he's frustrated, which is why I think you see him going out to the podium again, because he doesn't have it. He can't get any purchase on anything. And so, yeah, I mean, there was an article. There were a couple of articles a few weeks ago that said, you know, Trump can land a, a punch on Biden and it's driving him, driving him crazy. I'm sure it is. Once the nominee, the vice presidential nominee is named, then we're going to start to see a new round, a new energized Trump. You think any chance Trump is going to drop Pence? No. Not going to do it? Uh, Nikki Haley seems to be so actively raising her hand, pick me, pick me. It's like watching Tracy Flick on Twitter every day. <laughs> um. You know, at this point, you know, I, I would say this is that I think the evangelicals stick with Trump a lot because of Pence, uh, which I don't think they might like Haley, but that he she is not one of them the way Pence is. Um, and, you know, that that create this is a campaign that is already I mean, to say that they're chaotic is 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 an insult to chaos. So, you know, dropping, you know, a sitting vice president for a new nominee, you know, I just don't I don't in most. And here's the thing too, voters. As much as we always make a big deal out of it, voters don't really vote for the VP nominee because the VP nominee doesn't matter who it is. Ultimately, you know, in that role, you subsume your beliefs, you, you subsume the, your policy preferences, you subsume your politics to the presidential nominee. That's what happens. You know, the last big interview Trump did, the Chris Wallace Fox interview, obviously was uh punchy, to say the least. You saw a lot of pushback from Wallace. Do you think those interviews actually changed minds on Fox? Like, do you think that did any actual damage? The press made hay of it for a good day, as they do, but did it do anything? Well, remember that it runs on the, Fo you know, it runs on the Fox affiliates too, right? So, and then I think it runs later in the day on Fox News. So there, there's probably a broader swath of people that watch it on channel five or wherever, you know, whatever your channel is locally that your Fox affiliate is. Um, it probably didn't give you any level of comfort, right? And especially because he gets so wound up. I mean, Wallace is an, I mean, he take, he's, he's walking in his dad's footsteps, right? Like he does not, he did not let the president of the United States off the hook on anything. 
And, you know, and, you know, the bemused looks on his face when they're going through the, the cognitive test, you know, the, it, well, it's a picture and it says, what is it? Well, it's an elephant, right? And like, Wallace is like, what, what am I doing here? Um, but for, I thought Trump, it was the dead. Sarah Palin moment of, of the campaign. I was surprised that more references weren't made to that. That felt yeah, like, you know, the bad. same thing. Sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good point. Um, I don't know that Trump reads magazines. I think he reads the front page of the New York Times. Um, and maybe the front page of the Washington. He hate reads them, right? Um, he can't live without. He, he can't live with them, and he can't live without them. He scans um, for his name. He scans for his name, um, and the names of people around him who have clearly leaked um, to to a reporter. Right. Um, but I, I think that it 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 was one more opportunity for him to sound halfway normal, and he couldn't even pull. He, he did halfway normal would have been okay. He was not normal at all. That was that was a bad that was a bad performance on his part. And I think part of it too is the re, one of those things is where where will it be? Where will it matter? I think it also drove him back to the podium. I think he realized, um, you know, he reads the press, he watches the news. He, you know, we. I mean, did, I don't know if you saw. We made a Seinfeld episode out of that. Yes. A, you know, two and a half minute Seinfeld episode. Like, I think that he knew he did badly, even somewhere in the recesses of his brain. And I think you've seen that he felt like he had to go back out there and be his true self, which also does not help him because all the networks cover that, right? Um, and so, you know, he's, his Rose Garden strategy is one where like, uh, it's like everybody in the Rose Garden has taken peyote buttons before they, uh, before they sit down. Right. I tell you, know, he's been so critical of late of uh, Fox, which hasn't been its normal cheerleading self. And I wonder if, if Fox helped make the man, can Fox undo the man? Oh, sure. They couldn't heartbeat. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, here's, here's, I think this is important to understand. And it took me going to New Hampshire before the New Hampshire primary to really get it. Um, I spent two hours outside the, in Manchester, New Hampshire, talking to Trump supporters who were waiting to get into the rally, probably the last big rally he had before all this went down. And whether or not it was, you know, high school kids, middle-aged women, older guys, when they talk about why do you, when, when you ask the question, why do you support Donald Trump? It, they're literally all reading off the same sheet of music um, from top to bottom, the issues, the words, it's all, it's all of a type. And what it showed me in stark relief was how effective and efficient the Fox News, OANN, Donald Trump, Rush Limbaugh, Mark Levin, Alex Jones, tinfoil hat, QAnon Russian troll thing really is. I mean, they move their messages and they move them fast. Here's the thing is that it's, 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 you get a taste of it and then you do, you get some more and you get some more and you get some more and then you're watching it. And it, I mean, I'll say this, I'm totally biased, right? Totally stipulate to my bias, biases. Um, but if you watch it, it's an alternate reality. It's like it does not, it does not in any way exhibit normal, you know, life in America. Um, and so, you know, it's, I remember last, the summer of 2019 being at my in-laws house and they watch Fox religiously and, uh, you know, and it's very loud and it's all over the house. And my wife comes in and she says, I can't stand it anymore. And I said, well, what are they talking about? She goes, Hillary Clinton. It's like August of 2019, right? <laughs> like we are three and a half years or two and a half years past the 2016 election. And they're still talking about Hillary Clinton. Like they've got to feed the catnip 
into the into the into the mall in order to keep the people fired up and they they just press that that button that adrenaline button they just needle it repeatedly and it's got to be exhausting for the people who are on the receiving end of it and i wonder also like how much it breaks them down right that they just they have to stay so wound up that they're eventually exhausted and it actually makes it easier to accept that stuff or it makes it easier for the foxes of the world to transmit that stuff because the defenses that you'd normally have are now sort of worn out, if that makes right. sense. I just made up a totally psychological theorem on the fly. Maybe somebody else has said it. I don't know. Probably worth a, like a Harvard or a Stanford study on it. I have this vision of like this army of college and millennial kids basically churning out your videos and handling your social feed they're so voicey they're so nimble they feel young i'll be frank you guys aren't like you know college co-ed so but there's a voiciness that feels like very fresh and modern and maybe that makes me sound old but who are these people that are making your stuff they're you know they they are the uh they are the workers in the mines and the uh laboratory you know um there, there is a, a, a an army of them. There, yeah. Some look, some are young, some are older. Um, it really runs the gamut. Um, but I think what you're seeing is not necessarily related to youth, but related to the the creative freedom that comes from not, not being attached to a party superstructure or a candidate or a campaign. Um, we can say, like if we come up with an idea at seven in the morning, and we decide we want it to run at three in the afternoon, like we'll get it done. Who made the decision? We did. We decided we wanted to do this. We decided this would work. And if it doesn't work, we won't do it again. Um, but a lot of campaigns, um, you know, are hamstrung by, well, you know, is that the tone we want to take? You know, the, the polling doesn't show that that works. The focus, this didn't test well in the focus groups. And so what you see is a lot of folks trailing the narrative and trailing the polls rather than saying, how do we get out there and lead the polls? How do we get out there and say, this is the direction we believe we can help steer this campaign and let's go do that with all the externalities involved. Right. And so, for example, you know, the, the Confederate flag ad I mentioned, you know, NASCAR and the state of Mississippi no longer fly the Confederate flag. All four branches of the United States military have given up the Confederate flag and banned it from their facilities. That's, that's pretty like humbling social change in like eight weeks. Mm -hmm. Right. And the fact that Donald Trump is behind social change compared to NASCAR in Mississippi, I think, tells you what right. you need to know about the guy. Right. Um, and so from our perspective, it's where do we believe the campaign is going to go and how do we create content and prepare content so that it's ready? I mean, you know, we the, the Morning in America ad um, that got his attention, you know, we worked on for like two or three weeks. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, we had it ready to go when we thought the moment was right. But, you know, when we first got it, the tone was wrong, the music was wrong, the imagery was wrong, the pacing was wrong. And we worked on it, we worked on it, we worked on it until we said, this is it. And, you know, and he saw it at the exact right moment. He went crazy. You know, we'd raised about two million bucks up to that moment, raised two million dollars in the 36 hours after he attacked us. He attacked us again on the tarmac in front of Air Force One, you know, the loser project and all this other stuff. But he did what we wanted him to do, which was we got him on the hook. And as, as John Weaver, one of, one of our co-founders says, it's not trolling if you've got the fish on the hook, right? right. And so he gave us table stakes. And so on, on any given day, we are now the, the, the president of the United States' prime antagonists. It's not Joe Biden. It's not the DNC. 
it's the Lincoln Project, which was four guys who had a phone call last September, got a wild hair, put a, you know, wrote an op-ed, put it in the New York Times. If you had told me when we launched that thing that we'd be sitting here, you and I would be talking about the fact that here's where we are. I mean, certainly none of us could have seen COVID coming. Like, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, but I think that what we've been able to do is first speed kills, right? Uh, we, we believe that you have to, you do have to drive the message. And this is a guy you have to go after directly. You can't, you can't beat him with intellectual arguments and you can't beat him by calling him a liar and a racist and a misogynist because he doesn't care. He knows those things are true, but he doesn't give a shit. Pardon my French. Um, so you have to illustrate for people in very stark ways, exactly what his actions mean for them. And I think that's what we've been able to do. My takeaway as a consumer of these videos is that mm-hmm. while I, I love them, I love that you're, you know, somebody, somebody opened the door to take some punches at this man. He's thrown so many. I am exhausted by how nasty things have become. And I worry that now sure. that we've normalized the, the nastiest campaign ads in American history, let's call them for what they are. We are in just a moment of unparalleled nastiness that there's no going back. The genie's out of the box. Like we're just this is it. This is what politics is like now. You know, I hope that's not true, but your, your, your concern is, is well taken. And I think frankly, well-founded. I don't think we would fight this way if we didn't believe that this was the way to go after this guy. If I thought that we could write, you know, run policy-based fact, you know, uh, statistic-based, you know, you know, ads that ran a thousand points in the green bay market you know and it would beat him we'd do that that's not how you're going to beat this guy right he's not conventional you have to play the game he plays and i think it almost is this and why maybe it doesn't have to be this way past this if we can get this guy out is that for trump you have to deprive him of sunlight and oxygen and i think that's what we've been able to do you know in in 2015 and 2016 he garnered like 90 percent of the media space from the moment he came down the escalator until the moment he was elected. I think now, and I think COVID has a lot to do with this, um, is we're in his face, right? We'd never give him a day off. Um, and so he's always on his back foot. He is, he is from the Roy Cohn school of fighting, right? Induce fear, um, punch, punch, punch again. And when you think you've got him on the ropes, punch him one last time. Um, we don't, there's no fear on our end. And he doesn't know how to compute with that because you have to remember, he is, he is a non-confrontational guy. He doesn't want to fight. He wants to scare you out of the fight. And I think that's what he did to a lot of the Republicans in the 2016 campaign was that they just didn't know what to do. And if you go back to Mary Trump's book, he's been doing it all his life. He's done the things that no, and said the things that no one else would do or say because no one else would ever have thought to, get it, to do that. And he got away with it because people were so like, what? What just happened? He doesn't get a free pass this time. And so, like, when this is over, do, you, do I think that we'll, you know, put the, put the rhetorical weapons back in the locker? I hope so. But, you know, the, the, there's, there's still other zombies out there. And so maybe we'll use them more sparingly. But for the time being, this is the way to keep the guy off balance. This is the way to get, ensure the guy can't drive a narrative. And lastly, to ensure that every American voter knows just, like, like you have to make a choice. Like, this is it. This is, the, this is the election. Do you want America? The America that we want or could have, or do you want Donald Trump? Those are 180 degrees apart. Yeah. And one means we all have options. 
and we can make things better. And the other is we're at the mercy of this guy and his goons for four years and who knows what happens. Well, on that note, thank you very much, Reed Galen. I really appreciate it. It was a very interesting conversation. I enjoyed it thoroughly. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Have a great one.